Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. I was praying over the weekend and I heard Jesus say something. And he told me that he wanted to see all the gifts displayed and appreciated. And I said, what do you mean, Lord? And he said, I was called a prophet and a servant. And so I just want you to know that's part of our our culture, our value, our commitment is we want all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's at least nine that are listed in the New Testament, probably many more. Don't want to just limit the Holy Spirit to that, but we want to make sure that we highlight, yes, we are after hearing the voice of God. There's something about the gift of prophecy that calls out the other gifts. So if you're sitting there wondering, why do they prophesy and why do they talk about that? And that's one reason. You see it in the New Testament. The gift of prophecy is meant to look into the heart and the life of other people and say, you have this gift. You have this gift. You have this destiny. And it calls it out. And therefore, more gifts are put on display. But I think Jesus this morning wants us to acknowledge that he is the prophet of all prophets and he is the servant of all servants. And he loves humility and he loves servanthood. And so that should color all the gifts of the Spirit. Is that really the truth is, if you have a gift, you're called to serve. You're called to wash the feet of other people, period. So I've asked Reed Rutlinger to come up here. I gave him about 20 minutes notice, which I'm sure he's appreciating. And as we in the coming days highlight certain gifts, there are people that have gifts that catalyze other people's gifts. And Reed is one of those people. He loves to serve. And when he serves, things happen. And so I've asked him to share a couple of things. One is, why do you do this? <laughs> why, why do you think God gave you that gift? And then the other would be, what happens when you serve? What happens inside of you and what happens inside of other people? So, servant Reed. Hi. <laughs> um, so, humbled to even be asked to stand up here, not worthy, but, um, so we've been, uh, involved in, uh, the fixer upper group y'all have heard about. We fix up kind of homes for folks that need that help and some other things. And, um, I just, for, for me, I guess it became, um, like, what do I, what, do, what, what gifts do, do I have and how can I give those back? And so, uh, I, you know, I'm good at organizing and, and leading and, um, and then had this kind of fix home repair thing, you know, that we're kind of uh, good at. So just thought about folks that, you know, elderly or single moms or whatever that, that could use some help. And so kind of put that group together and uh, we went out and we've um, done a few projects and it's just about, um, it's just about loving people and just showing them the, the love of Jesus and um, through, you know, mowing their yard or 
trimming the trees or fixing a sink or something. Just that's kind of the physical part of it. But spiritually, I think it's just saying God loves you and he's giving you a big hug and he sees you and he um, and and um, just kind of a way to show that to them. Um, and what happens? What, what do you see? What, what happens in people's hearts and their lives when you do that? Uh, well, they, um, a lot of folks are just overwhelmed by it. You know, they're overwhelmed by it. I think the, the, the physical needs are often overlooked or not thought about. And, um, and so they're just super appreciative. My knees are shaking. Uh, can you see that? Um, they're, uh, they just, okay. Yeah. So they just, I mean, they're just super appreciative and, um, they respond really well. For me? Yeah. So it's, and I was just in my 20 minutes of preparation here thinking about um, uh, just how uh, satisfying is kind of the word this morning, satisfying um, it is. And, you know, yesterday was, uh, we had an open day, which is not, you know, very common, you know, no ball games to go to or whatever. And so I got stuff done yesterday, but it was just a day, you know, it was just another day and I checked some stuff off the list. Um, and then a day where we go and we do project and we spend the day serving and, and, and loving on somebody, uh, that's a beautiful day, right? That's a, that's a blessed day. And that's when you feel like, okay, I've, I'm in, I'm where I belong, right? I'm doing what I belong, um, doing what I need to do. <laughs> and, uh, I was just thinking about also in my 20 minutes, how so much, uh, the striving we do, like we're striving for all kinds of things. Um, but when that striving is in the, the Lord in, in the Lord and what you're called to do and what in the gift, right, that's when the satisfaction comes to your heart and the blessing. So. so I want you to pray for us that the Lord will stir up the gift of service in our church. Will you do that? Father, um, We thank you, Father, for the gifts that you have given to every single person in this room. Every single person has something that you've given them that they can give away, Lord. And we pray that you would highlight those things, uh, even right now, highlight those things in each person that they have, that they can give back to you as a blessing to others, a way to show your love to other people, Lord. So we just pray that you would, you would activate those things. You would bring those things to mind. You would highlight opportunities to use those gifts and those skills. Um, even right now, Lord, in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Oh, one more thing. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. There is actually one more thing. Can you stay after and pray for people with the gift of service? So Reed will be over here. Reed and his family, if they want to come up and pray too, on my right, your left. And if something was stirring in you and you were saying, I resonate with that, I think I have the gift of service, then you can come over and either receive prayer or pray for God to stir that up in other people. Really important, isn't it? We want to be that kind of church that celebrates, loves, cultivates all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit because God is so full and wonderful.
All right, before we look at Revelation 9, I want to highlight something that's out in the Resource Center. And for those of you saying, where's the Resource Center? It's right through those doors on the right. There's books out there and handouts and practical guides for the gifts and prayer and things like that. But Connie put together a prayer booklet called A Door Opened in Heaven. It's 21 days of worship from the book of Revelation. It is rich because it's the word of God. So if you're interested in three weeks of looking at worship and prayer, prayers and hymns in the book of Revelation, you can grab one of those. And if we run out, we'll print more up and have those out. Thank you, Connie, for doing that. So Revelation 9, we are in part 11 of our series on Revelation. And we are having a good time, aren't we? That's when you say yes, where we are having a good time because it is scripture and it's the book of Revelation, which is often avoided or misunderstood, but we're plunging in. We said this year, we're going to take several months and work through it chapter by chapter so we get a, a picture of what this book is. And we've seen several things. One is that this is the final part of the biblical narrative. It's the final chapter in the story of the Bible. And we know God wins. That's what Revelation tells you. Said before, the message of Revelation is Jesus Christ is Lord. And you could add an addendum to that. And that would be God wins. So as we're looking today at some pretty heavy things, we remind ourselves Jesus is Lord and God wins. And the book really is, it is gospel, good news, truth. It is about God, the holy creator, guiding all of humanity, all of human history, all of creation, according to his sovereign plan. And he will wrap everything up and consummate his kingdom through the person of Jesus. So it, it, that's good news, isn't it? It is good news. So we've seen that everything flows out of the vision of Jesus and the Father in chapters 1 through 5. Another thing that we've seen in this book that we remind ourselves, it's a book that fuels worship and empowers witness. Just like it was for the first century church, these words, these letters embolden the church in all times, in all places, to endure suffering, hardship, persecution, and to be faithful witnesses to the gospel of the kingdom of God. Last week, if you can remember that far back, we looked at chapter 8. We've seen that there are a series of seals that are opened. There's the seals, there's the trumpets, and there's the bowls, and they're all various judgments. And we saw last week in chapter 8 that the seventh seal was opened. You remember that? There was a moment of silence. There was answered prayer. The saints, their prayers were unleashed like fire on the earth. We didn't get to cover all of it, but there were some plagues that were released that parallel the Exodus story. And again, the point of all of that was God in his great mercy at different times in the history of the churches reaching out to human beings and saying, I love you, submit to me, submit to the throne, give yourself to the king. And this is one of those moments, these plagues, these judgments, as much as anything were meant to get the attention of sinful people. Today, we're going to look at chapter 9. 
we're going to see trumpets five through six blasting. And what we'll see is last week in chapter eight, the judgments, the trumpet judgments were aimed at creation. They were touching the earth. This week it shifts gears. Chapter nine, they actually touch the people on the earth. And so it intensifies. It's one of those sobering moments in the book of Revelation. Yes, it is good news. Jesus is Lord. It's gospel truth. But this is where it gets particularly sobering. So buckle up, friends. Buckle up as we look at this. If you remember, chapter 8 last week ended with two woes. And it was two woes to those who dwell on the earth. So today, we're going to look at two things. We're going to see in chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, this horde of demonic locusts that come out of a place called the abyss. Secondly, we're going to look at verses 12 and following. There's a demonic cavalry, a bunch of like mutant centaurs that are unleashed on the earth to bring judgment. These are often misunderstood, as we'll see. Again, as we do each week, I'm going to walk through it verse by verse and explain and try to clarify it a little bit. But while we do this, while we do this, I want us to be thinking, what is our ultimate focus? It's not demonic creatures, strange things, but it's the living God, right? So even as we look at this, we're reminded that the book of Revelation is about God. It's a revelation of Jesus and his lordship. So I want to encourage us this morning as we look into this to remember that God is in control. And we're going to see again that those who are marked by God are protected. The wrath of God is not aimed at those who bear the mark of God. So we have reason to celebrate And really, this passage tells us that we can be joyful, confident warriors of love in the Lord's army. But it does explain that at different points in the history of the church, different points in human history, there's warfare. So let's look at this. I'm going to read the entire thing. Chapter 9, you can grab a pew Bible there if you want. I've got a slide up here, series of slides that will spell this out. It's 21 verses, so hang in there. If you remember, in the opening chapter, John is told that those who read the book of Revelation receive a blessing. So even in material like this that's rather heavy, there is a blessing here. God is in control. The passage actually is going to show that God is, in fact, in control over all demons. So here we go. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation as we look at this. That you would help us see this in a light that we've never seen before. The light of truth in your mercy. Revelation 9, 1 through 21. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. 
and the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given authority like the authority of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to damage the grass of the earth or any green growth or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torture them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torture was like the torture of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails like scorpions with stingers, and in their tails is the power to harm people for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. So deep breath, right? You with me? Deep breath. Again, we're going to walk through and clarify some of this. Verse 12. The first woe has passed. There are still two woes to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels were released who had been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year to kill a third of mankind. The number of the troops of cavalry was 200 million. I heard their number. And this was how I saw the horses in my vision. The riders wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of humankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Their tails are like serpents having heads and with them they inflict harm. The rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornication or their thefts. This is the word of God. And I'm so glad that Reed is going to come back up and explain this passage to us. You ready, bro? (laughs) That's right. You know what? Our knees should shake. This is the word of God, and we can't ignore it. We have to walk through it together. And I think this is a timely time to look 
at passages like this because really the backdrop of it is the Lord calling the human race to repent and to not go over the edge of the cliff. And friends, we're going to see part of this is an ongoing diagnosis at different times of human culture. And we're going to see that some of this is right on target for where we are in an American context. And the Lord is reaching out and saying it's time to repent. It's time to turn from the wicked things that you're holding on to and receive my mercy in an instant. But this is one of those moments. This is one of those hours in our country where a word like this has pertinent meaning. So let's look at the demonic locusts from the abyss, verses 1 through 11. We see at verse 1, the fifth angel blowing his trumpet, a star falling from heaven, given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, again, we've seen over and over, the book of Revelation is filled with symbols. And the best way to interpret the symbols is with Scripture. And so you use, first and foremost, the book of Revelation to interpret the book of Revelation, but you also look into other places in Scripture to interpret this. We see in Revelation 20, places like Isaiah 14, that speak of a falling star symbolically. It's like a a demon. It's either Satan or one of his demons that has been swept down to the earth. And so, frankly, we don't know if this is this angel here is Satan or if it's one of his minions. The text doesn't say. He's given a key, right? Whoever this is, whatever this is, is given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Where else have you seen a key? Anyone remember? Way back in chapter 1, Christ is given a key to the place of the dead, and he goes and plunders it. And so John is trying to signal to his hearers, yes, this is a heavy moment. Yes, this is ominous. But who holds all the keys? Christ. So he wants us to hear this and to see Jesus in it. Connie was talking at the prayer set on Tuesday that she was sensing we should read every verse and every chapter with Jesus in it. And this is one of those moments. Jesus holds the keys to death. He is triumphant. He wins. He's won already through his life, death, and resurrection. Now, this is mentioned here, the abyss. It's an underground chasm. The word, I love this. One commentator said, it's like an under, a subterranean smokestack. There's something underground in the spirit realm. It's the abode of the dead. It's the place where demons and Satan will be imprisoned. The book of Revelation is a come back and talk to it. But friends, this gets our attention, doesn't it? An abyss opens up. Smoke rises. The sun is blocked. And what comes out of this abyss? A massive locust army. And again, John's mind, his theological imagination was filled. It was populated with images from Hebrew scripture. And so in his mind, in this visionary experience, John would have been thinking of the locust plague that invaded Egypt in Exodus 10. 
and Joel 2 where it speaks. All of Joel's prophecy is about an invading locust army. One commentator says this, these locusts are bred in the desert. They invade cultivated areas in search of food. They may travel in a column 100 feet and up to four miles in length, leaving the land stripped bare of all vegetation. So for a person in the first century hearing this, locusts in and of themselves are a sobering thought. When a massive army of locusts literally came, it could tear all the crops and take them away, strip the land, and you wouldn't have food. And so how much more does John's vision convey this? These are spiritual locusts. And you look at verses 3 and 4, they're given power like scorpions to torment people who don't have the seal of God. Some of you may have been stung by a scorpion. I remember my grandmother sharing a story with me, which she probably shouldn't have, about getting stung on the toe one time. And she said, there's nothing like it, honey, getting stung by that scorpion. And so I would check my bed, I don't know, for maybe 25 years. After hearing her share that story, I was like, Grandma Marion, next time don't share that story. But friends, I don't want to make light of it. I mean, really, what is being conveyed in this vision is that these creatures who were well-known in ancient Palestine, they inject some kind of deadly poison into people. It's highly symbolic. How much of this is literal? What is symbolic? We're not really sure, but we don't want this coming after us. <laughs> Just like the people in the first century at any point, you want the mark of God. You want the mark of God. You want the name of God on your forehead, amen? The love of God, the mercy of God. And so that's part of our message in this hour is let the mercy of God invade your life. Let him heal you. Let him restore you. Don't resist. Some of us have resisted, but we chose not to resist anymore. We give ourselves to our creator, to our maker. We don't resist. I just want to tuck in something here in Luke 10, 19. Jesus says to his disciples and to us, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and what? Scorpions. That's right. Thank you, Wallace. I heard that. So even in the midst of this, not only are God's beloved people marked, but they're also empowered. Even in the face of horrific demonic creatures that are unleashed, I don't know, maybe at various points, maybe as we move toward the end of reading this, it, it culminates at one time. We're not sure. The text doesn't say. But friends, it almost doesn't matter if you're a believer. You can tread upon all the power of the enemy. Amen? All of it. And I think sometimes we don't realize that. Sometimes we tremble in fear when we hear something like this. It's almost like we fear the power of the enemy more than we fear the power of God. Friends, we trample on this stuff. So whoever is experiencing this as a believer will tread 
and trample and have this power of Satan under their feet. Verse 6 says that these demonic creatures torture the unsealed people for five months. Why five months? We don't know. Perhaps it was the lifespan of a locust. They live for five months, and so it might be something figurative there. It also might suggest, just like when we see one-third, that it's limited. It's not something ultimate here. It's only five months. People will long to die. People will seek death, and they won't be able to die. Again, as we've seen, I tend to think that there's a symbolic first century meaning and application because the letter was written for them. And then, as we saw, there are future ripples of something like this culminating in the ultimate experience of this. And so, frankly, I do think that there will come a day and an hour where the human race will experience something like this. And those who are unbelievers, who are obstinate, who say no to God and cling to whatever their idols are, whatever demons they're worshiping, they'll experience this and they won't be able to die. It's kind of interesting. If you read the New Testament, Christians, on the other hand, like Paul and others, like my grandmother that I mentioned, she longed to die to go be with Jesus. This is different. This is a different kind of thing. And I'm not sure the text doesn't reveal. It's a longing for the end of the torment doesn't end. But for believers, we have a longing for death, but it's different. It's a sanctified longing to be with the Lord. Friends, think about it. Listen to me for a moment. The ultimate thing that can happen to a Christian is what? Death. Are we fearful of death? We're not fearful of death. So this text the book of Revelation gets us to ponder that. We don't cling to even our life. The worst that can happen is that a believer's life is ended and you're immediately in the presence of the Lord. Friends, we win. Even death itself has been disarmed and we tread upon the power of the enemy. Verses 7 through 10 here as we work through this. The locusts look like horses equipped for battle. This makes me think of C.S. Lewis and others, all of these strange features that are combined, strange features and strange creatures came to mind, mixing human and qualities of a beast. It's unnatural, it's diabolical. I read somewhere that these are like demonic centaurs. They have heads like horses, antenna that are resembling disheveled hair. They have destructive lion-like teeth armor-like scales on their throats or thoraxes, wings produced, producing loud sounds and scorpion-like tails. Again, because these are symbols, they throw off all kinds of meaning. One person says this, these locust demons seem to reappear in new disguises and torment in forms such as alcohol and drug abuse. Insatiable yearning 
for sexual pleasure. Collective hysteria and subgroup tantrums. Neurotic drives of all forms. Driving passions for power, prestige, and wealth at the expense of one's own humanity. The torments of psychic disorders and other locusts. So this person was looking at this symbol and saying not only does it speak of something at the end of the age that happens, but it's actually the way the enemy works. He sends locusts into our lives to attack us. May also suggest deception and false teaching, and we'll learn more about this in the coming weeks. But this sounds like demonic attack that happens in our culture, does it not? Some of those things I listed there, addictions, brokenness, isolation, things in our current culture. I'm just going to let you know here personally for a minute. I see these kinds of locusts spiritually, metaphorically, at work in our political situation, at work in America right now. And frankly, I look at various leaders since I've become a little more politically attuned, and frankly, I think some of them are demonized and demon-possessed and have a scorpion or two latched on to them, controlling them, and I don't like them. Anyone else? Am I the only one in the room that looks at the American political structure right now and what's been happening? Not only, geez, we can trace it back, but let's say over the last 20 years. And it's kind of culminating in this moment right now. And as I look at demonized leaders, we're called to pray for them. So I can't help but think of just our current cultural context and we're called to pray for these people. Called always to pray for our leaders. And in the first century, guess who the Christians were called to pray for? The emperor, Domitian. And these were some crazy, demonized, demon-possessed people. And the apostle Paul says you're supposed to pray for your leaders. So friends, as we look around and we see the locusts working in our current context, we need to pray for the mercy of God, to pray for the gospel to impact and spread like fire through our country and through the rest of the world. Quickly here, let's look at verses 12 through 21. How are we doing? Doing okay? Here's what I want to do. I would do this often in class. I'm going to take about 30 seconds and let you can chat with the person next to you. You can take a breath, pop in a mint. I'm going to take 30 seconds, and then I'll come back, and we'll look at the other verses. All right? Good, no one left. Maybe a few people did. You know, before we look at verses 
uh, 12 and following, I want to go back and just make a comment here on the names that are listed here. It mentions it. Verse 11, the king that's over these locusts is Hebrew, Abaddon, and Greek, Apollyon. These are, this is basically death personified. So it was a place the original hearers would have said, oh, that's a place, that's where the dead go. But it's personified. And there's something interesting here I meant to point out that some of the emperors in the Roman Empire, and the first century Christians would have known this, they actually claimed to be an incarnation of Apollo, the Greek god. And so the readers and the hearers of this would have been hearing a little bit of encoded language. The emperor Domitian, this is a camouflaged way of saying that their political leader was actually controlled by the demon lord of the underworld. That's why I made some of the political comments that I did. As we look at our political leaders at different times, where they're influenced, they've opened themselves up to dark forces. It was that way for the first century hearers. All right, verses 12 through 21. These trumpet judgments are intensifying. And we read here in these verses about a demonic cavalry of 200 million breathing out death. This guy named Robert Mounts, who's given his life to studying the book of Revelation, says this. Nowhere will you find a more accurate picture of sinful humanity pressed to the extreme. One would think that the terrors of God's wrath would bring rebels to their knees but not so. Past the point of no return, they respond to greater punishment with increased rebellion. Such is sinful nature untouched and unmoved by the mercies of God. And so that's what's being spelled out here. Again, each week there's so many facets to this. This angel is blowing the trumpet John hears a voice, and this cavalry is led by these four horses. They're bound at the river Euphrates. Why that? Because it's the longest river in Western Asia. It was a boundary for Israel, and it was a boundary for the Western Empire. They're released to kill a third of humankind, verses 13 through 15. How many are there in this cavalry? I want to say something here that might offend some. 200 million in this demonic cavalry. 200 million demonic horsemen. It literally means twice 10,000 times 10,000. This is where if you get online and start looking at things, which I did. I looked at some illustrations and read some of the crazy commentary that's out there that makes people avoid the book of Revelation. So do you see why we're trying to work through it? verse by verse, chapter by chapter, to make some sense of it, see the true message of it. But I want us to be humble here. I came across something that someone said some time ago, back in the 60s, that 
Time magazine, actually, in 1965, pointed out that China had a 200 million man army. And so, since then, Hal Lindsey and others have said this could be prophesying something not symbolic, but it could actually be something more literal. A lot of New Testament scholars would actually make fun of people that say things like that. And they would say, can you believe how hokey and ridiculous that is? And friends, I think we should be humble before the text of Scripture. There's another comment that's made about, and I'm sure you've heard this. As we read it, you've thought about it, that some of these things, verse 17, are speaking about modern warfare and modern technology. And that it could be John was seeing a helicopter or some kind of machinery that was used to kill people. And some people scoff at that. Some people will read that in a commentary or hear someone talk about it and they'll go, ha, ha, that's hilarious. I want us to be humble. This is a vision. So any scholar or New Testament commentator, anyone who is prideful enough to think exactly they understand what John was talking about, I think is pretty presumptuous. John saw a vision. He's doing his best to describe what he sees in the vision. I tend to think the safer route is to look at it symbolically and all, but what if John is seeing something that he can hardly describe and it actually is something in the future? I don't know. I just want to acknowledge that and that there tends to be an overemphasis on the symbols and a disregard for what John could be seeing. And frankly, I just don't think the Lord likes it. I think the Lord wants us to be humble before the text like this. Do you hear me on that? I'm not saying at all that this describes the Chinese army. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that these are helicopters. I'm I'm not saying that at all. But I think that we should understand this is a vision Paul, uh, John is in the spirit. He's seeing these things. He's using biblical language to describe it as he sees it. But sometimes prophecy happens literally in a way that some people disregard. When there are Old Testament prophecies about Jesus riding in on a colt, Jesus being born of a virgin, they happened literally. So I think we want to have that balance of understanding the symbolic nature of it And, frankly, God can say and reveal and do whatever he wants. And we want to know his word to the best of our abilities and rely on the Holy Spirit and have a humble approach to all biblical prophecy, all of the word of God. Amen? Okay, so we're going to end with this, and then we actually have a story of a healing that we'll we'll end with. But I want us to touch on this. I want you to put that screen up quickly here about we get a little preview of Babylon. We see that people are resisting the mercy of God and they're experiencing these judgments and they still will not let the mercy of God wash over their lives. They will not submit to King Jesus. These things are happening. And so... In verses 20 and 21, there's some specific things that are named here. And I want you to listen to these. They were not repenting. People on the earth at this time of their murders, their sorceries, the word is pharmakia, 
fornication, the Greek word for that is porneia, or their thefts. And so what you see here in chapter 9 is a little forecasting of what spiritual Babylon will be like in the later chapters. And we're going to spend some time looking at this because a spiritual Babylon continues to develop at various times in church history. We'll see that some of these characteristics fit us right where we are now. And so the Lord gives us wisdom and power and authority to face these kinds of things in Babylon and to invite people to leave Babylon and to enter the kingdom of God. Can you read those there? Right at the center of what Babylon, spiritual Babylon, is all about. And again, we'll look into this in greater detail. But right in the middle of it is the worship of demons and the worship of idols. It's basically worshiping things in creation. It's not just worshiping little statues made of silver or gold, but it's worshiping anything within the created realm rather than worshiping the creator. Sound familiar? So this is a preview of that. I'm going to end with this here. When a civilization turns idolatrous, its people are profoundly changed by that experience. In a kind of reverse sanctification, the idolater is transformed into the likeness of the object of his or her worship. Israel went after worthlessness and became worthlessness. So friends, this is heavy stuff, yes, but the gospel is in it. The Lord reaching out in mercy, in kindness, in love. First Timothy 2, 1 to 4 says that God wants everyone to be saved. That's the Lord's heart. The Lord's heart is for everyone to experience the Father's love and to experience salvation, to be transferred from the domain of Satan to his kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. So Lord, we ask you in the coming days to help us understand this. Take us deeper as we prayerfully read scripture and we pray it and we live into it. Tenderize our hearts, fill us with love and mercy. Amen. Next week, we're gonna be looking at Revelation 10. It's kind of a little pause in the narrative. It's one that I've mentioned before. John is going to encounter this massive, mighty angel who's holding a little scroll and he's told to eat it. So I invite you next week, read chapter 10, Revelation 10, and eat the book. It's a great word picture for what we're supposed to approach scripture like. We're supposed to approach it in a way that we feast on it, we eat it, we devour it. So as we end here, got some young ladies here who on Wednesday night experienced a healing. So why don't you come up here and tell us about it before we transition into ministry time. So Grace Glass prayed for Banner. So I'm going to ask you, Grace, to tell me how this happened. And then Banner, you get to tell me what it was like to experience it. And then these two are going to pray for other people to experience healing. All right? Um. On Wednesday night, we were at CORE, and we were doing prayer requests, and Banner came to me and said that she um, had a trampoline injury, and that she hurt her neck, and that she had been having pain, and so 
I laid my hand on her and I prayed. <laughs> I laid my hand on her and I prayed, and she kind of looked at me and I, I didn't know what was wrong, but she kind of shook and, and then she was like, "The pain is gone." And so. So in that moment of kind of, in that moment of kind of feeling like something hit me, it was really cool because I felt numb in my neck. I had been hit on the neck by my sister's knee on the trampoline, and it had kind of, I'd kind of not felt right all day. It had been kind of just off and on hurting. And I'd always kind of struggled with, like, neck, like, pains. And, like, when I was healed, I was shaking, and then it, like, turned numb, and then it was gone immediately. And I never, I haven't had, like, any even, like, pain in my neck since, so. Yeah. Grace, give me some. So these young ladies over here to my left, why don't you go ahead and come up here, are going to be paying it forward, right? Because the Lord heals, and oftentimes when he heals someone, you get to pass that along. So why don't we stand? Friends, the Lord loves us so much. And if today you need to weed some things out of the garden of your heart, if you need to repent and turn from some things that you've been clinging on to, the Lord is here to forgive and sweep you up in great mercy. It's the way he works. Friends, there's something joyful about repentance. It gets a bad rap sometime. All it means is to turn to God. So repentance is joyful. It's not sackcloth and ashes. It's turning to God. It's turning to the Father. Letting him love you and cleanse your heart. So ministry team, if you'll come up as well. Let's have folks up here. Reed's going to be again up here to my right, your left, praying for people. As we stir up all the gifts of God, he's going to be praying for people who want the gift of service stirred up. Reed and Nikki here will do that. These young ladies over here will be praying. If you are sick in your body, you have an injury, they're going to pray for you. You may have to line up over here, but I would suggest coming over to get prayer for healing. So the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship Spirit be with each of you this week. Have a wonderful week.